0: This is the Nietzsche Podcast. I remember one time uh, I was talking to a friend of mine, a bandmate of mine, actually. We, we were on tour, you know, it was evening and uh, before the show we were walking around in Nashville in the park uh, near this scale model of the Acropolis that they have there. And I brought up Free Will um, because it's a fascinating topic to me and i don't really remember why i brought it up i might have been reading something about it that day but we were just sort of talking about philosophy and things of that nature and i brought up free will and my friend said i don't have a position you know i don't really care about the the free will debate and when i asked him why he repeated something that i've heard all too often which is it doesn't matter people are going to believe whatever they want to believe Um, So the logic goes. So, you know, in absentia of any compelling evidence in one direction or another, people are going to take the position that matches with their temperament. They're going to come down on the side that lines up with their own presuppositions and their intuitions. And that seems to be what generally characterizes the free will debate, to be fair. I mean, because it's gone on forever and ever, and there's never been any definitive answer Even within the context of religion, at least in terms of Western society, you know, different sects in Christianity have different opinions on whether man's will is free or not. And so we find this issue even along sectarian divides and not just in disagreements among secular thinkers and the debate never gets anywhere. You know, people have literally been arguing about this for millennia. And so it seems to some people like my friend, it seems to be a stagnant, boring issue. Because ultimately, why does it matter? There's something a little bit shifty underneath this answer, though. I'm suspicious because it seems too convenient. Because in practice, it just it ends up just being an excuse to just take the default view, which is that we have free will. Um, I've even heard a variation of this sentiment expressed by the likes of influential public intellectuals, people I respect, people such as Christopher Hitchens, and in the present day by our old favorite, uh, Dr. Jordan Peterson. In Hitchens' case, uh, he said, um, and I quote, we must believe in free will because we have no choice. Um, this is Hitchens' talent for pithy phraseology on display here, which is what made him so brilliant. That's um, There's that saying from Hamlet that brevity is the soul of wit. And so Hitchens condenses the arguments that had made uh, had been made you know, by people like um, like Kant. And this uh, sentiment expressed by Hitchens points to, as the relevant fact, the phenomenon that people think of themselves as beings with free will, whether or not that is actually the case. The argument here is that we're condemned to freedom, to use a turn a phrase an existentialist might appreciate. You know, you can intellectualize, you can make up arguments as to why the will isn't free. And perhaps in some science scientific sense, Uh, Maybe this is even true. But at the end of the day, you still have to make the choice. You're still saddled with the experience of making the choice. And so this argument may even strike some of you as perhaps being a little Nietzschean, given what we've talked about in the episode on truth, that, you know, the noumenal reality of free will perhaps is not as important as the human experience. Ah, and yet what we experience and how we interpret our experiences and what conclusions we draw from those experiences, therein lies the rub. And so I have a problem with Hitchens' argument here because it's based on something which Hitchens himself would have taken issue with, and that is faith in one's intuition. What this argument points to is the intuition that the will is free. The intuition that what we are having is an experience of freely making a choice. So what is free choice? Well, to be a truly free choice, if you're choosing between two options, it would have to be possible for you to select either option. What does that mean? Well, it means that human will would be truly an unpredictable force. It would mean that whenever someone makes a decision, we would always hold that they could have they could have done other than they actually did. That independently of all the factors leading up to that decision, there would be an a-causal element of reality, that is to say the will would be uncaused by anything, existing entirely separate from the age, the culture, the upbringing, the genetics, one's random life experiences, physiological instincts, and so on. And so now again, I'm not making the argument at least not yet, against free will here. But I think by drawing out what the claim of free will actually entails into such explicit terms, we see that the free will doctrine claims that the human will is effectively an uncaused cause or a cause unto itself. And I'm drawing out what this doctrine actually entails because we have no good reason for trusting our intuition about whether or not that claim is true. Why would intuition be sufficient in upholding this idea? We can still acknowledge that yes, people have the experience of making choices, or at least that's how they interpret their experiences. But the idea that the choice is freely made, that you could have chosen otherwise, that is the intuition that Hitchens is pointing to. And it's not something that we have evidence for in the human experience. It's sort of an ontological claim about reality. That we're backing up with a feeling. The mere experience of making a choice is not sufficient because that isn't the nature of the dispute. The intuition we're talking about here is the intuition that the nature of the human mind is this uncaused cause. In every other instance, Hitchens would recognize what is going on here. A religious claim is being supported effectively by things like personal experience. And deeply held feelings hitchens himself again would not accept that in any other circumstance other than free will and so this is not a real argument being made <laughs> it's the claim that we shouldn't even have the argument i remember hitchens himself argued in a, in a debate on the topic of reparations he said that whenever your opponent takes it upon himself to explain why you shouldn't even have the argument. That should get your attention because it's something they don't want to touch. They know the evidence isn't there. This isn't a rationally held position, and it's not going to stand up to scrutiny. And so, in the free will debate, there is usually some response of that nature um, from the free will libertarians or from the compatibilists. So, the free will libertarians are the people who basically think the will is the uncaused cause. I should say the the compatibilists are far more common these days. And to briefly explain who they are. The compatibilists are people who argue that free will and determinism can coexist, and this is usually based, you know, when you probe a little bit, on some variation of Hitchin's assessment or the, the general sentiment of, like, do not care that even though the evidence or the arguments against freedom of the will might seem strong, um, especially, like, when you look at what a lot of neurologists have had to say, uh, the experience or the intuition we have of having free will is so valuable that we shouldn't get rid of it. Um, and the reason why the free will idea is valuable is outlined rather well by Jordan Peterson, who I mentioned, who has been known to say, and, uh, you know, I'll just kind of paraphrase here cause I don't have a direct quote in front of me, but he'll say things along the lines of like, well, you can get rid of free will as an idea, but that's just the entire foundation of the whole moral and legal traditions that are completely central to the ideas of Western society and individualism. You know, that the individual is the sovereign being who has their own free choice. So you can get rid of all that, but I don't think it'll work out well for you. You know, Jordan will say things somewhat along those lines. And so again, we may notice here, Jordan is arguing for holding on to a belief because of the good consequences of that belief and the bad consequences if we let the belief go. He doesn't consider that in spite of everything, perhaps our moral and legal traditions are in fact based on a lie. And that, therefore, that would mean that what we call justice is actually a form of injustice, wouldn't it? Which would, of course, mean there are bad consequences to keeping the belief also, and good consequences to getting rid of it. You know, again, I'm not particularly interested in, like, fleshing out an argument along those lines here. I'm just pointing out that if you're going to say that we can't get rid of free will because of some advantage it gives to believe in it, you leave yourself open to that counter argument. Okay, what if it gives greater advantage to get rid of it? And is that seriously what the argument should be about? What, what, what the nature of our noble lie should be? Is that really like a Petersonian style argument? But in any case, Peterson says, no, you simply have to go on believing in free will, even if it's not true. And so at this point in the podcast, I could understand if you, the listener, is now entirely sick of the free will debate because usually the form it takes is people bringing up irrelevant information and appeals to emotion and appeals to tradition or convention and just merely expressing their own moral prejudices rather than really making an argument. And usually this is because they don't want to have the argument. Um, and this applies to the determinists as well. I've kind of taken the piss out of the uh, the the free will libertarians and the compatibilists, but. Oftentimes, the determinists just sort of say, ah, it's been proven by science, it's been proven by neurology. And some of the you know evidence that they draw on is not as strong as they think it is. But we're going to set all that aside, because that's not going to be the topic of the podcast. We're going to approach this um, psychologically. And so uh, this is where Nietzsche comes in. We're just going to jump right in here to Nietzsche's work. This is an excerpt from Human All Too Human, aphorism number 39, it's called the fable of intelligible freedom. And uh, Nietzsche says here as the sort of uh, concluding remark of a long argument, quote, No one is responsible for his deeds. No one for his nature to judge is to be unjust. This is also true when the individual judges himself. This tenet is as bright as sunlight and yet everyone prefers to walk back into the shadow of untruth for fear of the consequences, end quote. So there you have Nietzsche's takedown of Hitchens and Peterson on this issue. Walking back into ignorance because they're afraid of the consequences of the truth. You can tell I'm really trying to rile people up, can not show you? Let's take Nietzsche and use him, use him to attack two of the most popular intellectuals, <laughs> um, at least on this issue. But so to speak seriously, though, this is This is the whole picture right here, Nietzsche here goes, he goes straight around the issue of the will as a causal force, or as an uncaused cause, or whether external factors overwhelm the internal or whether people have the experience of making choices, which are all in my view, um, oftentimes the way these issues are explored are, are somewhat distractions from the central issue. Nietzsche attacks the heart of the matter, the reason for the free will doctrine in the first place. And the heart of the issue is the assertion of a person's moral responsibility. Our moral responsibility for our actions is the motivation that laces the entirety of our thinking on free will on on a cultural level. The whole point of our conventional belief in the phenomenon of free choice, a.k.a. belief in the will as this uncaused cause, at least to some extent, is to prop up this belief in the responsibility of the human being. In a moral sense this is what all our moral judgments about people are based on after all isn't it if you take away the element of free choice and you conceive of every human action as necessary and therefore unchangeable this would be the view that if someone's going to attack someone else for example you know maybe you could restrain them or you could intercede to prevent it but if the person is unchecked and the only element is their own choice they would make the same decision Every single time and have no ability to make a different decision. They might experience making a choice, um, you know, and, and, but imagine a world like that where no decision could ever be made differently in actuality. Everyone just acts accord in accord with their own nature and no one chooses their nature. Um, You know, a lot of people would conceive of like if an animal were to attack somebody, like if you were to get attacked by a tiger, most people don't conceive that the tiger made a rational choice. Um, but in that world where we conceive of people in the same way, to punish people for crimes, um, for the sake of retribution in any case, would be a completely pointless exercise. And from a, from a moral framework, um, you know, based on the morality that we claim to hold today, it would actually be unjust. Justice as retribution falls apart under this framework. No one is morally responsible for anything and therefore no one deserves punishment. No one deserves anything. And that is a scary thought. So what do we do as a civilization? Well, we walk out of the sunlight of knowledge, fleeing back into the darkness of ignorance and, uh, the darkness is this supernatural belief in the freedom of the will. And we do this for fear of the consequences, which is exactly what Jordan appeals to, we can't give this up or else. I'm going to read a little bit more of this passage, um, the fable of intelligible freedom. Uh, just now I sort of read the conclusion of the argument, which is, you know, this is the top line summary of the information in this very, very long aphorism. But it's worth reading a bit more of it because I want to compare it to an aphorism in Beyond Good and Evil. And so this is the first, I think, in the podcast, I'll be looking at two long form Nietzsche passages in parallel. And I'll be reading from both passages sort of back and forth and comparing and contrasting them. And I'll, of course, be abridging them and and just not quoting the whole thing. Um, I'll bridge as needed and not cover, you know, they're very long. They're very long. So there's a lot here. But I'll try and get the most relevant uh, parts I can. So through the comparison of these two passages, um, in two works which are eight years apart, so you have Human, All to Human, written in 1878, that's right, when Nietzsche is done teaching, leaving the university, and then Beyond Good and Evil, written eight years later where he's been traveling, spending his summers in, you know, the Swiss Alps. And uh, he's written this book, Zarathustra, and all these other works. And um, Nietzsche's thought was actually rather consistent on this topic, even though his focus in each respective work is slightly different. What he's interested in both is explaining how we got to this place. How did mankind develop this idea that we have the free choice, and more importantly, that we are therefore, on the basis of that free choice, morally responsible for our actions. So in the Fable of Intelligible Freedom, he says, quote, the history of those feelings, by virtue of which we consider a person responsible, the so-called moral feelings, is divided into the following main phases. At first, we call particular acts good or evil, without any consideration of their motives but simply on the basis of their beneficial or harmful consequences, quote. And so now uh, let's compare this to beyond good and evil. And this is from book two aphorism number 32. Nietzsche writes eight years later, quote, during the longest part of human history, so-called prehistorical times, the value or disvalue of an action was derived from its consequences. The action itself was considered as little as its origin it was rather the way a distinction of disgrace still reaches back today from a child to its parents in china it was the retroactive forces of success or failure that led men to think well or ill of an action let us call this period the pre-moral period of mankind the imperative know thyself was as yet unknown end quote. So this is phase one, Nietzsche argues for the majority of humanity's existence, we did not really attribute moral responsibility to people in the way that we do today. It was more of a correspondence view, a strict consequentialist view in some sense, although he says it's retroactive. So for example, if you did something shameful in ancient China, even if your intentions are good, the immorality of that, sh- that shameful thing stains you. This is a backwards movement of moral responsibility, right? Backwards compared to the way we would think of it, because it even reaches back to your family and then it even reaches further back to your ancestors who may be long dead. So rather than this view of the will as an uncaused cause, this type of moral evaluation is more along the lines of, uh, the relative value of the person and their will as determined by the effect. The effect of a person's actions is the cause of whether that person is good or bad. So that's an inversion from the type of causality we think about when we think about moral actions today. Um, you know, Instead, it's that action was harmful, immoral, or bad in some way, therefore you are bad, whereas we would say you are bad and therefore you, you do bad things. But um, in this retroactive um Causality, as we said, it goes back, you are bad, your parents gave rise to you, which must mean they're bad in some way. And so this, again, I want to stress this is not an argument that this view was more primitive because he says this is like a view of our prehistory, prehistorical man, um, or it's like less civilized or whatever. This this is Nietzsche pointing out how man used to have, the, the point of him bringing this up is that we used to have a completely separate set of moral assumptions. And the idea that the way that we do it today is just intuitively correct because it matches our own intuitions, that's a silly, almost ridiculous argument to Nietzsche. And so, also as an aside here, it's interesting to me, Nietzsche's not really concerned with the question of freedom of the will as yet. He's he's charting an anthropological history, so he doesn't take the freedom of the will for granted. He regards it skeptically. And he makes the same logical deduction that is shared by many people who want to avoid that debate. Um, and he therefore doesn't approach the issue as an objective phenomenon. He approaches it anthropologically and thus psycho- psychologically, um, sociologically. He's not doing rhetoric here. He's, he's, he's following an inquiry. He's taking stock of the evidence that man did not always conceive of himself and in act, his actions in the way that we do today, other cultures did it differently, which means that this is not an absolute, but a human creation. And so therefore it must occur since it occurs differently in different people, it must occur in response to certain conditions or factors or certain courses of development. And so Nietzsche investigates the question and he offers a hypothesis as to why there used to be a different view of human action, separate from the framework of, you know, one, one's own moral responsibility for their actions that we use now, that as the doer of the deed, you caused that deed and you could have done differently. What's the major difference? Well, he says at the end of the Beyond Good and Evil passage, the imperative know thyself was unknown. So Nietzsche is hinting that the the self-conception of human beings has changed. And that's what has changed this view. Perhaps there was once a more, um, shall we say, a more natural view of the human being a view of the human being as a a confluence of internal forces rather than this single solitary soul governing the body. And it's worth noting um, just briefly in support of this viewpoint, uh, this view that maybe ancient people had a different view, in ancient China, which is actually the country that Nietzsche mentions, the view of the human being was actually very similar to this, that the human was not seen as a thing with a soul, but as the product of all these things like humors and different elements and different natural forces that are within you, but they're also the things that constitute everything material in the universe. And these forces interact, and through this dynamic interaction, they, they produce the human being as a sort of a, an emergent phenomenon. Michael Puitt has uh, discussed this. If you wanna know more about this topic, I'll, I'll link his lecture on Confucianism for anyone interested in the uh, the show notes. But this Chinese view or the Nietzschean view, they're not all that different. Um, so this is further evidence that Nietzsche isn't, he's not denigrating the premoral view. He's pointing out that the fact that man once held these different presuppositions, which therefore will undermine our faith that our own presuppositions must be correct. So returning to human, all too human, he outlines the change in perspective that occurred. Quote, Soon, however, We forgot the origin of these terms and imagine that the quality good, or evil, is inherent in the actions themselves, without consideration of their consequences. This is the same error language makes when calling the stone itself hard, the tree itself green. That is, we take the effect to be the cause. Then we assign goodness, or evil, to the motives, and regard the acts themselves as morally ambiguous. End quote. And so uh we'll compare this again to beyond good and evil um, thirty two quote in the last ten thousand years, however, one has reached the point step by step in a few large regions of the earth where it is no longer the consequences, but the origin of an action that allows that one allows to decide its value. On the whole this is a great event which involves a considerable refinement of vision and standards it is the unconscious after-effect of the rule of aristocratic values and faith and descent the sign of a period that one may call moral in the narrower sense it involves the first attempt at self knowledge instead of the consequences the origin indeed a reversal of perspective surely a reversal achieved only after long struggles and vacillations to be sure a calamitous new superstition an odd narrowness of interpretation thus became dominant the origin of an action was interpreted in the most definite sense as origin in an intention one came to agree that the value of an action lay in the value of the intention the intention as the whole origin and prehistory of an action almost to the present day this prejudice dominated moral praise, blame, judgment, and philosophy on earth, end quote. So it seems as though what he provisionally recognized and outlined in human All to human, he developed in much more detail in Beyond Good and Evil. And so I'll try and sum up the entire picture up to this point. The second stage is the moral stage of mankind, and this is the stage we're still in now we judge one's morality or immorality as a quality of the individual themselves. We call a person good or bad. And notice in both passages, he says that, um, to to judge people solely by their intentions, this is a further narrowing of focus as to what makes the person good or bad. That's a separate development in and of itself. It's still in the same era of the um, the moral phase of mankind. But to not just say that it was the origin of the person, it's it's another further step to say it's actually it's it's specifically in the intention. Um, in the Beyond Good and Evil passage, he suggests that the relocation of one's morality or immorality, at the origin, can even be thought of as sort of an achievement, right? Whereas he calls this more narrow focus on intention, uh, calam- potentially calamitous in and a new superstition. So this is the result of cause and effect thinking to some extent we now prefer to see ourselves as causes rather than effects so this moral view even if it's not deterministic is uh, much more mechanistic mechanistic than the pre-moral view so at this moral stage of mankind it, it corresponds to the refinement of religious thinking in Europe also what matters is what's in the heart what matters is what you believe and so on that's like the real judge of, of souls. So we can see this this shift in the cultural consciousness. This this finds its way into our legal system, um, such that if you know if you run someone over with your car on accident, you'll get a very different charge and a very different sentence from someone who runs over their car, uh, runs somebody over in their car on purpose. Which you know, I would say that's all to the good, obviously, because because there might have been a time in human history, and I think Nietzsche is correct about this. Where if you cause the death of someone like in your tribe, for example, the tribe is probably going to consider you bad regardless of your intentions, um, just because of the calamity that you caused. But um, let's zoom in a bit and consider what Nietzsche chooses to focus on uh, in Human All Too Human, uh, contrasted with what he focuses on in Beyond Good and Evil. In Beyond Good and Evil he focuses on how this belief in the freedom of one's will is actually a product of the aristocratic morality. So interestingly, Nietzsche sources this faith in one's own will as the, like the true origin um, of the action. He sources this to the upper classes, the nobility, the people who had power. And this has a sense to it because these are people who experienced making decisions, and reaping the consequences that followed. These are people who gave orders, they commanded armies, gave laws by decree, and so on. We're speaking you know, in ancient times of man's vast prehistory and ancient history. And so Nietzsche writes, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, that this political sense of freedom, the literal power to effect changes simply by expressing one's command, shaped this view of the will as this independent governor that issues orders to oneself, which is to say to one's body. So if you recall everything we discussed um, in the previous episode about the body and its drives, we might recognize that this view of the self as a mind driving a body is still an error, it's incorrect, but Nietzsche says this came from the upper classes, this faith in free will, and it enters our society through them, and so we should maybe have some respect for it in his view given you know, Nietzsche's general view of the upper classes or of the ancient nobilities, the ancient warrior aristocracies who Nietzsche admires. But on the other hand, um, as he points out in Human All Too Human, this is a trick of language. We're taking motive and intention and reifying it into being the origin of the action. But Nietzsche doesn't believe that our conscious motives are actually the cause. and And furthermore, there is potentially... You know this calamitous innovation that one's intentions are what make you good or evil and so what we might notice here is that nietzsche is leaving the door open for a fatalistic approach to morality that i'll later describe in in greater detail um by saying sort of that the the it's it might might have been an achievement to see um one's actions as just sort of an outflowing of their own nature This is like, he's leaving open a virtue ethics approach to morality, a character-based approach to understanding morality, um, which is, you know, we find that ethical framework in the ancient Greeks, so no surprise there that Nietzsche, um, is a fan of that, but he thinks the intentions-based morality, the morality that says you were a good or bad person because you chose wrongly, is a sort of pathological fixation, um, like a sickness of causality-laden thinking, an obsession with finding the definite origin of a human action so that the blame can be laid there. And thus, if you've been tracking with me so far, you'll recognize that basing our moral judgments on, on uh, intention depends on this contrivance of free choice that we have to posit about the human being. And so this further sharpens the view of the human being as being an ego as an ego consciousness this is the self as the rational voluntarily governing ego and Nietzsche doesn't think that that's a good picture of the self um and he doesn't agree with the moral responsibility element that comes with that and so what is the actual self in, in Nietzsche's view what it what is the cause of man's actions then well um we already sort of outlined the Nietzschean view that the self is the body and its drives, which we discussed in episode nine, and the cause of man action, man's actions are the drives. Our drives are the leading string of the consciousness's notions. Uh, the true self resides in the body. The body is made up of a bunch of distributed impulses, instincts, physiologically rooted desires and value judgments. And one of, when one of these drives um, makes itself felt, it, it pulls on the awareness of the consciousness. It motivates the conscious mind to use its reason to get what this particular drive wants, whether that be, you know, um, something as complex as social validation, maybe something more basic, like asking someone out on a date because, you know, of a more base drive such as you know, just being physically attracted to them, so maybe something as simple as hunger, something sated as simply as hunger. The conscious mind produces a story then. To explain why it is doing such and such a thing it gives a rational explanation to itself of its own actions and thus we don't have in actuality a unitary governing self-consciousness as it is customary to believe rather each person is this multiplicity of often competing drives and so we're driven by blind unconscious urges and then the conscious mind authors this into a motive so motive intention and the experience of free choice, in Nietzsche's view, is not actually the driving cause of a person's actions. Again, this a lot of this is covered in the previous episode, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna pull up any more source material to cover this. So if you know, listen to that episode if you want more information on this if you haven't heard it already. But so if 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 intention is just a, a post hoc narration of a relatively um, powerless ego consciousness, powerless in comparison to the drives. And the actual reason for human beings' actions is, is, is an unconscious motive, what we might call a stupid impulse. Then the person cannot be judged good or bad because of their intentions, um, any more than we can call a, a person, you know, good or bad, simply because their actions had bad consequences, which is like the ancient the pre-moral view that Nietzsche outlines. So these are, these are both mistakes, just in a logical sense in Nietzsche's view. So what is the next step? Well, he outlines it in human all to human. Quote, we go even further and cease to give to the particular motive, the predicate, good or evil, but give it rather to the whole nature of man. The motive grows out of him as a plant grows out of the earth. So we make man responsible in turn for the effects of his actions, then for his actions, then his motives, and finally his nature. Uh, end quote. And so the direction that we go from here is as such that it's a a person's nature rather than their conscious intentions that drives their actions. But the issue is that a man doesn't choose his nature. Um, As Schopenhauer wrote quote, a man wills what he wills, but does not choose what he wills, end quote. And Nietzsche would agree with Schopenhauer, who was a big influence on him. We're not the authors of ourselves. We did not select which uh, drives we would like to have uh, most strongly, as if from a menu. We were not born into certain circumstances um, by choice. You know, we experience certain things, we're raised with certain beliefs. Um, you know, you have a certain set of parents, and due to those conditions, into our genetics, um, and all these factors, we develop a certain nature. When we're talking about nature, we mean your character, yes, but. We, we also have to be, be sure to include not just what, what is conscious about you, but also what is unconscious. And so to go on a little further with the quote, um, in human all to human quote, ultimately we discover that his nature cannot be responsible either, and that it is itself an inevitable consequence an outgrowth of the elements and influences of past and present things that is man cannot be made responsible for anything neither for his nature, nor his motives, nor his actions, nor the effects of his actions. And thus we come to understand that the history of moral feelings is the history of an error, an error called responsibility, which in turn rests on an error called freedom of the will, End quote. And so this is not just the history of how man came to believe in this fable of moral responsibility, it's the history of another more fundamental error which affected man's development in this moral sense, and this is the the error of the freedom of the will, as Nietzsche says, and he, he gives us the direct, explicit statement of their link here in this passage. Now, here the passages uh, diverge a little bit, interestingly, because in Beyond Good and Evil, in the third step he moves on to. It, it like it seems like he's giving a a more uh, where the free spirit should move on to in the human all too human passage right um whereas in beyond good and evil he 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 just he talks about it in a slightly different manner than he does in human all to human um and he because he, he's speaking about it in world historical terms in terms of ages, and so here he predicts a period that is beyond the moral, which is to say extra moral and so uh quote don't we stand at the threshold of a period which should be designated negatively to begin with as extra moral? After all, today, at least we immoralists have the suspicion that the decisive value of an action lies precisely in what is unintentional in it. While everything about it that is intention, everything about it that, that, that can be seen, known, conscious, still belongs to its surface and skin, which like every skin betrays something, but conceals even more End quote. So there's, as he says, to repeat the decisive value of an action lies in what is unintentional in it, which is to say the meaningful level of analysis of the human being is the analysis of their nature of that, which is unconscious in them, unchosen instinctual. That if we take this view of human beings deadly seriously, of the self as a multiplicity, of the unconscious as the driving force, and so on, where we arrive at is an extramoral view of human beings. And so, where the passages diverge is that he seems to suggest we're, as a whole civilization, maybe at the threshold of moving on to the extramoral phase. But I don't know, maybe. I, It's my interpretation. So we we might recall he wrote in the passage we quoted from in episode nine from the dawn, that each person is an unknown text to himself, upon which the consciousness is merely a commentary, a commentary on a, a text unknown. And so looking to the individual's conscious intentions or their own narrative explanation of themselves and who they are is folly. And so thus in this extra moral phase, every person is a a completely amoral entity. Um, Everyone's returned to the level of moral irresponsibility that we might attribute to an animal, which is not to be degrading, by the way. You know, Nietzsche writes somewhat um, poetically about this at the end of Human All to Human um, in one of my favorite aphorisms. It's called Truth as Circe. Circe was, of course, the witch who controlled one of the islands that Odysseus and his men um, visit on their odyssey. And, uh, Circe uses her magic to turn men into pigs. So once again, uh, Nietzsche picks a, a woman to embody truth and to illuminate th- this particular aspect of truth. He picks Circe and he writes, quote, error has turned animals into men. Might truth be capable of turning man into an animal again? End quote. And so an example I'm, I'm, I've brought up, uh, among my friends that they all you know i'm fond of bringing up to illustrate this point is the fact that if you know say an elephant were to go on a rampage and kill a bunch of innocent people most people living today in the western society would not agree that the elephant you know needs to be punished for retributive reasons they wouldn't say it deserves to suffer and die we don't assign moral responsibility to the elephant but it wasn't too long ago that there was in fact an elephant lynching right here in America in 1916, an elephant named Mary who killed a circus handler was hanged by the neck using a crane to do so and killed. Uh, now psychologically this incident is a, it's like a gold mine of dark insights into human nature and just how cruel and sadistic and ignorant people can be. But there's an element of this incident that seems to suggest that the people thought the elephant needed to be punished, that it did deserve to suffer and die for whatever that might mean in the case of an elephant. The argument here would simply be that as confused and ignorant as such a group of people who would lynch an elephant for murder would seem to us today, Nietzsche is suggesting that perhaps there will come a period in human history where we would regard the kind of people who would execute a human for murder, in the exact same fashion a simply confused or perhaps just like lying to themselves. So, you know, maybe they can have some fun engaging in some good old fashioned cruelty. So, all right. So we've spent a lot of time with those two passages because I think they flesh out, um, the most important parts of the Nietzsche imposition on the will very well. And again, again, it demonstrates this unusual consistency that Nietzsche shows. But um, I, I want to keep going through, we're going to set aside the Beyond Good and Evil passage, but I want to keep going through the passage in Human All to Human, um, even though we've already, we've, I guess we're just doing a deep dive on this one passage. Um, hopefully we'll, we'll get to some more material. But um, Nietzsche here references Schopenhauer, and one gets the impression that some of Nietzsche's thought on this issue like developed out of this disagreement that he had with the views of Schopenhauer. So I've already mentioned that Schopenhauer disagreed with the idea of free will in the simple sense, and that he thought, we don't freely make these autonomous choices day in and day out. Rather, our actions flow forth from our nature. But Schopenhauer believes that we do have some responsibility for our own nature. And Nietzsche disputes this. And central to their dispute is a feeling. And this feeling is a very common one in the human experience. It produces one of those intuitions that Nietzsche sees as like the driving force behind this belief in free will. And that feeling is guilt. And so I quote, From the fact of man's displeasure, uh, and I should explain. So when Nietzsche says displeasure here, he means displeasure after an action. So bad conscience, guilt, etc. Back to the text. Quote, from the fact of man's displeasure, Schopenhauer thinks he can prove that man somehow must have had a freedom, a freedom which did not determine his actions, but rather determined his nature. Freedom that is to be this way or the other, not to act this way or the other. Man becomes that which he wants to be. His volition precedes his existence. In this case, we are concluding falsely that we can deduce the justification the rational admissibility of this displeasure from the fact that it exists and from this false deduction Schopenhauer arrives at his fantastic conclusion of so-called intelligible freedom but displeasure after the deed need not be rational at all in fact it certainly is not rational for it rests on the erroneous assumption that the deed did not have to follow necessarily thus because he thinks he is free but not because he is free Man feels remorse and pangs of conscience. Furthermore, this displeasure is a habit that can be given up. Tied to the development of custom and culture, it is a very changeable thing, and present perhaps only within a relatively short period of world history. So, again, let's track the argument up to this point. Mankind had multiple stages, different periods at which he held a different perspective on morality and man's moral responsibility. Then we got this sense of intentions and therefore of freely made choices as the determinant of whether a man is good or bad. Here, what Nietzsche is doing to add to this argument is investigating this intuition of having a free choice. And the analysis here is that this intuition arises because we have these faculties of memory and imagination. So the consciousness can bring before itself the memory of what actually happened, of the choice you made, and it can bring before itself this imagined alternate choice that you could have made. That's why it's so useful to frame this issue in the past tense when talking about it, because that's how people experience it in in consciousness. And that, that's also the only way you could ever make a rational argument for free will, right? Because um, Sure, you have the experience of making choices, but you don't know whether or not you would have made the same choice every time. Um, You don't know whether it's actually possible that you could have made another choice. Um, So, you know, but that where that happens is in the fact that you can survey your choices in memory and replay them, so to speak. See, you know, you do something you feel remorse over. You're supposed to study for a test, but instead you play call of duty for 11 hours and then you oversleep. And then the next day uh, with the test looming, you start to think of the disappointment your parents will feel if you flunk this class, um, you know, the stress of having to take the class over again um, or, you know, maybe you're like, Oh no, I'm not going to have enough credits to graduate on the you know timeline I set out. Maybe you have a crisis of self image because you regard yourself, um, you know, you don't think of yourself as acting irresponsibly and foolishly and perhaps um you know th- you have some personal sense of shame and and you just you think if only i had just buckled down and studied and so you have displeasure after the deed and you imagine what it would have been like if you had done the right thing from the fact that your consciousness is able to imagine this alternate reality in which you did the right thing which doesn't actually indicate anything to us about reality as such by the way um But from that fact, you extrapolate that you could actually have done differently. And therefore, you make the mistake of thinking that the deed didn't follow necessarily from your own nature, that what you imagined could have been real. And the prospect that you could have done otherwise, but that you didn't, that you therefore failed to act morally out of a free choice, this produces guilt. Schopenhauer took this guilt as evidence of free will. Nietzsche is saying No, the sense of free will actually exists as a way to explain and justify the guilt. Because if the sense of moral responsibility depends on free will, what this means is that within an individual psyche, the social mores, the shame of breaking the social mores must be made to seem powerful. And they have to be able to exercise their power on the psyche. And the form this takes is guilt, which is, it's, it's a form of fear of the community and its mores laundered through our psyche. So we might remember Nietzsche's notes we read from last time about a feeling having to be suppressed by a thought. This is the project of civilization. The community demands, the individual control their impulses, and so we must bring the thought of fear before our mind's eye, and that is the fear of the community, fear of punishment, fear of shame or whatever, in order to suppress the impulse. And so whenever we fail to do this, because our impulse is too strong to be suppressed by a thought, that fear of the community then lingers. The sense of having transgressed against the community and their morality still lingers, which is the sense of displeasure that Schopenhauer and Nietzsche both describe. And the conscious mind must then explain or deal with this lingering displeasure, and it must do this through the language that its culture teaches it. And thus, the conscious mind experiences this displeasure as guilt, and this transformation happens as a result of the freedom of the will doctrine, and in support of it, um, it moral responsibility and freedom of the will and the feeling of guilt—all of these phenomena in the human mind are intimately related, and one cannot really understand one aspect without understanding the others. They—they—they they, they come together in some sense. And this is part of why Nietzsche is called a proto-psychologist. So his focus here, again, is primarily on the human mind and on finding explanations for why we hold the beliefs we do, on explaining the human being and his beliefs as their own phenomena. The issue for Nietzsche is not always to explore whether a belief is true, but often to explore what the belief reveals about us. And the result is that because he's often examining the beliefs of others from this critical posture, like of investigating psychological motives, it can sometimes be difficult to figure out what Nietzsche, Nietzsche himself thinks about the topic. And so um, let's get into what Nietzsche himself thinks. Let's move on from these passages. We're going to another passage in Beyond Good and Evil. Um, he, he, this is perhaps his most famous passage on the topic of free will. Um, many people incorrectly point to this passage as evidence that nietzsche was a sort of compatibilist um, and we'll discuss that in a moment but here he attacks both the libertarian free will position and then the mechanistic deterministic view in beyond good and evil uh one aphorism 21 and so i'm going to read a a abridged version of the quote quote the causa sui is the best self-contradiction that has been conceived so far. It is a sort of rape and perversion of logic. The desire for freedom of the will in the superlative metaphysical sense, the desire to bear the entire and ultimate responsibility for one's actions oneself, and to absolve God, the world, ancestors, chance, and society, involves nothing less than to be precisely this kaza sui and pull oneself up into existence by the hair out of the swamps of nothingness with the daring of a munchausen End quote. so uh kaza sui means cause unto itself therefore an uncaused cause and by the way kaza sui is one potential argument one might make in christian apologetics for how you know God fits into the chain of cause and effect if one is making say a cosmological argument God is the unmoved mover the first cause that's one way one argument you could make uh the other analogy Nietzsche uses is pulling yourself up out of the swamp by your hair this is the story of Baron Munchausen as he mentions um and this story is sometimes cited as the origin of the the common idiom of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps um now obviously he uses his hair in the uh, analogy but it's like this this sort of defiance of gravity by sheer gumption and so that's nietzsche's analogy for freedom of the will so notice notice uh what he's comparing the libertarian free will view to that's the view of the will as the uncaused cause religious religious you know style argument the first thing he points to um to demonstrate the absurdity of this position, is that rather than simply being a plain-faced common-sense intuition about the human condition, this is a metaphysical position. And it's ultimately irrational because it's a tautology. And so again, it's a religious belief. It should be understood psychologically in the same way we regard other religious beliefs. But then further down in the passage, um, we have the complication that Nietzsche introduces. We have his attack On mechanistic views of the self quote in the in itself there is nothing of causal connections of necessity or of psychological non-freedom the unfree will is mythology in real life it is only a matter of strong and weak wills it is almost always a symptom of what is lacking in himself when a thinker senses in every causal connection and psychological necessity, something of constraint, need, compulsion to obey, pressure, and unfreedom, it is suspicious to have such feelings. The person betrays himself. End quote. So here he psycholo- psychologizes, psychoanalyzes the, deter- the determinist, um, which is a you know, the belief we have no free will for, for mechanistic reasons. And Nietzsche's rejection of free will, this is, so this is the key thing to understand. His rejection of free will is his rejection that there's a causal chain between one's intentions and their actions. He disputes this um, for many reasons, but among them is the reason that we shouldn't, he, he, he questions whether we should reify causality as an explanation at all. But the determinist takes causality to the extreme, Rather than seeing his own will as a cause, um, he takes, you know, this, this view of causality as a world explanation to its, to its total conclusion and sees that all these external causes overwhelm his own will. This, this, um, this also comes from the religious model of the self we've inherited that the self is the synonymous with the ego consciousness, um, so, you know, you wouldn't have this problem if you were to con- reconsider your body and your drives and impulses as just as much yourself as your rational mind, right? One wouldn't say they were compelled or forced by a drive like hunger or thirst or a sexual need or whatever, because they would say that's me. You know, I'm not, how can I, con- you know, that's not me enslaving me. That doesn't make any sense. So Nietzsche says the view that seeing all of your, what would you say, the forces that in conditions that compel you. The people who who take that view that reveals a sense of weakness of people who do not feel in control or they don't wish to feel in control they they wish to cede their responsibility for themselves and so um where do we have it here he goes on to say in this passage that it's revealing about the determinist that the first thing he does is take the side of criminals you know that or that he's the first to take the side of criminals the determinist Is always pointing out the injustices in our system owing to the fact that the will is not free Um, as i did basically at the start of this episode if you've been paying attention so what the determinist or the mechanist is really looking for is like absolution to not be indicted by the fact that they're weak and and by weak nietzsche is talking about what we might call in the old sense like moral weakness somebody who feels divided within themselves you know, fighting between two equally powerful drives that they can't keep in check or in balance. And so, say, the desire to have a job and raise a family and so on against an alcohol addiction. Let's, you know, imagine such a person who just cannot get a handle on their drinking, no matter how they try, and it's getting worse and worse, and they they can't see how they could go without it. It's easier for such a person to believe they're simply doomed and have no control over the situation And not face up to the harsh reality, which is why in, you know, AA, which I know it's disputed how well that works. I've heard their numbers are like, they maybe help a quarter of people beat alcoholism, but they, they want you to acknowledge that you're, you're able, they, 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 they simultaneously want you to acknowledge that you have to remand yourself into a higher power, but also you have to take total responsibility for yourself. Um, and so there is, and a lot of like therapeutic schools of thought, this, this idea that there's a need for the patient to take responsibility for themselves if they're actually going to, um, get their act together, which is, I think this is like the most charitable, this criticism of Nietzsche's is like maybe, um, the most charitable way we could view, um, how like a Jordan Peterson might think about free will. But on the other hand, the person who, who wants to basically say that they are themselves entirely their own creation and pretend that they did author themselves that everything in their life is is by their own free choice this is this reveals a naivete about reality this is the strong but foolish view that comes to us through the nobility um Nietzsche writes about this elsewhere in uh book nine of beyond good and evil he says quote the noble soul accepts the fact of its egoism without any question mark end quote So notice, here we have the Nietzschean relationship with the truth and all its complications appearing before us once again. Because Nietzsche acknowledges that there's something strong in the view of feeling responsible and independent, even though that view is also ultimately incorrect. And he also acknowledges that the people who wish to believe in unfree will, which I would say, um, from everything we've read, is the less wrong view, um even though it has its causality superstition, um, but according to Nietzsche, people who wish to believe in this are often driven by weakness and like a lack of satisfaction with themselves, and so he's simply pointing out the blunt reality that embracing an idea because you wish to be absolved of guilt is not that's not a good or healthy motivation for embracing that idea um And so, furthermore, even though Nietzsche has basically winnowed away any possibility of claiming that our intuitions of free will are based on anything rational, uh, he points out in a section of Twilight of Idols called The Four Errors that mechanistic views, you know, the mechanistic ideology, is itself not strictly rational either. As I mentioned before, Nietzsche doesn't believe we should reify cause and effect thinks causality is a useful interpretation, but it's not explanatory. Um, it, it's not a, an ultimate explanation of anything because it either leads to an infinite regress because every cause is also an effect and every effect demands a cause. So it's either causes all the way down, the same way it's turtles all the way down, or you have to posit an uncaused cause, which Nietzsche says in the passage we just read from, is like the worst explanation of <laughs> logical explanation for anything that anyone's ever come up with. So basically to put this into the least contention ter- contentious like terms I can think of without getting really bogged down in this detail, Nietzsche thinks cause and effect is a linguistic framework for describing reality, but it's not an objective phenomenon. It's just an interpretation of objective phenomenon because it rests either on this infinite regress or some other absurd explanation like a causa sui so it can't be the ultimate explanation Um, so he writes in the four errors of how this um, the skepticism uh, towards causality applies to consciousness and our his view of how we interpret our consciousness quote we believe that we are the cause of our own will we think that here, at least, we can see a cause at work. Nor did we doubt that all antecedents of our will, its causes, were to be found in our own consciousness or in our personal motives. Otherwise, we would not be responsible for what we choose to do. Who would deny that his thoughts have a cause and that his own mind caused the thoughts? Quote. I'm going to keep going in this passage, but skip a little further down where He again gives a sketch of his own viewpoint, which is is beyond these old errors. And Nietzsche writes, Meanwhile, we have thought better of it. Today we no longer believe a word of all this. The inner world is full of phantoms and will-o'-the-wisps. The will is one of them. The will no longer moves anything, hence does not explain anything either. It merely accompanies events. It can also be absent. The so-called motive, another error, merely a surface phenomenon of consciousness, something alongside the deed that is more likely to cover up the antecedents of the deed than to represent them. And as for the ego, that has become a fable, a fiction, a play on words. It has altogether ceased to think, feel, or will. What follows from this? That there are no mental causes at all. The whole of the allegedly empirical evidence for that has gone to the devil. End quote. So the important distinction that I hope has been made is that Nietzsche does not believe in free will in either a libertarian or a compatibilist sense because he doesn't believe that there is this unitary entity called the mind or the self that exists to be an uncaused cause of thoughts. The will and its motives, he says here, they're just a, what does he say? A surface phenomenon of consciousness, but he doesn't adhere to the determinist or the mechanistic position because that's just another, you know, that's still just taking the same picture of the self as this rational mind, but then saying that the external causal factors, um, you know, cause the individual's will, it takes it like back a step further the will itself and its intentions are not the ultimate cause, the determinist says. The ultimate cause is nature, nurture, and so on and so forth. But Nietzsche doesn't agree with this either, because, for one, he doesn't conceive of the self that way. And second, he's skeptical of causality as this framework for explaining all of human action. And he finally, he doesn't he doesn't think it's healthy to consider yourself an automaton or a slave. And so the idea is not that we're a slave to the passions, which we would call like this pathological determinist view, that would be depressing. If anything, the argument is more along the lines of, you are your passions and you can't be a slave to yourself. So, um, got a couple more things to go. This episode's going to be kind of long, I guess, but I want to return to moral responsibility. Because it's easy to get lost in all these, like, these different other frameworks for viewing the human will and mostly what we've been covering is Nietzsche analyzing and criticizing them. And it's easy to kind of get lost in this, it, it, like trying to figure out, well, which ones do you like? Which ones didn't he like? Because except for a few sparse remarks here and there, um, most of Nietzsche's views on these topics are critical or negative positions. This is why he's not a compatibilist, by the way, to go back to that. He doesn't accept both free will and determinism. He rejects both of them. He has his own framework for understanding human beings. That is opposed to both. It does not try to harmonize both. The heart of the whole thing for Nietzsche is again, the sense of moral responsibility, which is the entire purpose that the free will doctrine serves. Anyway, on a philosophical level, Nietzsche's critique of free will, it's another, it's him analyzing why we think about moral responsibility the way they do. And so he's undermining that sense of free choice so that he can undermine the sense that we have some causal control over our own nature. So what is left after this? I mean, if we accept wholeheartedly the Nietzschean view of the self, we reject these notions about the will as a cause unto itself, or as the will as overwhelmed by these external causes, which, you know, it's causes and effects all the way down, what is left is fate to no longer reify the element of causality, to simply look upon uh, our lives in in this universe as this unfolding dynamic reality in which neither causality nor free choice play a part. Um, As ultimate explanations, they're both absurd propositions in their own way. And so the key, um, the change in thinking is not, the, the phrase Nietzsche would use is not causality, but necessity, and uh, Nietzsche wrote in Beyond Good and Evil 281, um, in contrast to causality, uh, the reality is, quote, there is no law. Every quanta of power draws its final consequence at every moment, End quote. So every action is just a expression or a manifestation of a person's nature. This is Nietzsche's way of of, of having his cake and eating it too. He doesn't see nature as a final explanation, so to speak. But he also thinks that we should locate the self within one's nature, which is the total person, the mostly unconscious, mostly irrational person with this conscious gloss on top of it, the this, this skin of intentions. Um, and so a man's nature is not written from his own hand, so he's not responsible for it. But... He says the nature is the self. So we we, we, we we have to let go of that moral responsibility and accept the whole self. And so what that means is we're, to put it poetically, we're all in the hands of fate. And so he writes in one of his famous passages in Eche Homo, Why I Am So Clever, part 10, quote, My formula for greatness in a human being is amorphati. that one wants nothing to be different, not forward. Not backward, not in all eternity. Not merely bear what is necessary, still less conceal it, but love it. Amor Fati, which means love of fate, points to the Nietzschean view of the human condition. And this is why I would call Nietzsche's view of human will by the name of fatalism. We all have a certain fate which is the necessary and final consequence of our own nature. And a great person will love their fate. It's one of the more enchanting ideals in Nietzsche, especially given what we discussed in the episodes, talking about his illness and how Nietzsche lived a life of relative agony compared to a lot of people, Um, a short, a short life of high productivity. Yes, but also a lot of suffering. And so setting the test for greatness is the wholehearted acceptance of the story of one's life exactly as it is including all that suffering it's a very powerful idea coming from his hand um some people have regarded amor fati this is a sort of a moral test which is to miss the point you know as in if you want to be great you should try and love your fate but i don't think that's what this is because that wouldn't make much sense when we remove the element of free will would it on the contrary, Nietzsche is using this as a litmus test, saying, by their fruits shall you know them. You know, you can know a great person by the fact that they love their fate. So can you love your fate? If so, you have a shot at being a great person. What about all the people who have like horrible or ignominious fates? Well, tough luck. And that may sound harsh, and it is, because Nietzsche argues... People throughout time have been afraid of the consequences of this shift in human perspective. We're now talking about Nietzsche's imagined extra moral phase of mankind, where we grow to see that what is meaningful in an action is what is unintentional in it. We accept the ultimately unintentional construction of a person's nature, human beings as natural beings, not unlike the animals and not, you know, not special and divine and thus possessing this magical will which burdens them with moral responsibility and moving on to this extramoral phrase beyond all that it's hindered by the fact that people are afraid um, nietzsche on the other hand he hopes for this shift in perspective to eventually emerge um he writes in thus spoke zarathustra in uh, the passage on the tarantulas quote therefore do i tear at your web that your rage may lure you out of your den of lies And that your revenge may leap forth from behind your word justice. Because for man to be redeemed from revenge, that for me is the bridge to the highest hope and a rainbow after long storms. So, this is what is made possible by this innovation in human moral thinking the deliverance of mankind from revenge and notice he indicts justice here he says it's a, a facade the word justice is the actual sentiment and behind it stands this desire for revenge we'll cover this in more detail once we get into genealogy of morality but the desire for revenge it's driven by resentment and what that is is the feeling generated when one experiences what we might you know call predation or violence or an assault or oppression, some use of power against themselves that they themselves don't have the power to stop. So one feels resentment when you can't repay the aggressor against you in kind and you feel powerless and helpless. And in Nietzsche's view, will to power is the central drive in human beings. And that's why this experience leads to this poison of resentment, this anger and rage, the animal desire to discharge power that's left unsated. And this eventually makes the person consumed with the desire for revenge. Um, And in Nietzsche's view, the noble people, they're, they're not concerned with revenge. They are first and foremost concerned with themselves and their own happiness, their own creativity. Revenge is a, a counterproductive activity. It's reactive. It exists to satisfy this feeling of resentment. And so I'd like to talk just a little more about what this extra moral age entails and how Nietzsche's judgment for humanity um, you know might look in absentia of moral responsibility thus without the desire for revenge and so he writes in human all Too human 99 quote those evil actions which outrage us most today are based on the error that the man who harms us has free will that is that he had the choice not to do this bad thing to us this belief in his choice arouses hatred thirst for revenge spite the whole deterioration of our imagination whereas we get much less angry at an animal because we consider it irresponsible end quote Um, so the feeling of revenge again so he he ties it he he's talking here about um how we regard other human beings in the modern day based on this feeling of revenge comes from Christianity and from other religions that say mankind is special, man is elevated above the animals possessing this free will. And uh, every religion says bad people will get their just desserts by being tortured in hell. You know, both, both of those are elements of Christianity. And Zarathustra, however, he permits the high hope that man could be delivered from revenge, and we no longer seek to make people suffer in the name of justice. And so bringing up religion here, I'm just sort of pointing out how The ideas that we have about eternal justice reflect our ideas that we have about like criminal justice within our actual system. Um, And so let's go a little further in human all to human aphorism 102 quote, we don't accuse nature of immorality when it sends us a thunderstorm. Why do we call the injurious man immoral? Because in the first case we assume necessity and in the second a voluntarily governing free will but this distinction is an error end quote and so remember in the Noah's Ark story it's I, I just it, this made me think of it because he he says a thunderstorm um you know obviously the Noah's Ark story God drowns the world with thunderstorms but at the end uh, there's this rainbow that that God creates so that's that's God's promise not to mete out punishment and that way to mankind ever again it's God saying the time of my wrath you know, cleansing the world in this way is over. It's time to build anew. And so that's why Zarathustra uses that, I think, image of the rainbow at the end of the long storm. And so I've brought in these aphorisms from human all to human because he's talking about uh, the injurious people and criminals and things of that nature. And so if you're wondering, as sort of like one of the last things we'll talk about, how a society would deal with what we would call, what we would normally call immorality or criminality. Nietzsche says in the same passage in Human All to Human, the wise man punishes not because men have done wrong in the past, but so that men will not do wrong in the future. And so this is basically a garden variety uh, support of criminal justice, but from the attitude of deterrence. It's a, it's a rejection of retributive justice. It's, which it seems it might seem strange to some people for Nietzsche to end up in this position based on maybe their preconceived notions of him. Cause I mean, me personally, I would usually associate like a deterrence based criminal justice uh you know, attitude as being a consequentialist attitude. And that's usually more associated with like a left wing attitude. Whereas like people who believe we should punish for retribution tend to come from the right wing or from you know, a religious background and they believe in like deontological or god-given ethics. Um even though Nietzsche doesn't believe in either of those like ethical theories, he's usually more associated with the right wing. So perhaps it might seem odd for him to purely believe in punishment as just deterrence to crime. But he actually goes even further than that and it follows from all of his positions so far, by the way, that there's nothing evil about the criminal. There's nothing inherently or essentially bad about his nature. He didn't choose to be evil. He didn't choose his own criminal nature. And so that's why he writes in the Dawn 236, a str- quote, a strange thing, our punishment. It does not cleanse the criminal. It is no atonement. On the contrary, it pollutes worse than the crime does end quote. And so he, he goes into great length in another passage, um, and I, I'm going to read this whole thing just to underscore how seriously Nietzsche takes this. This is the Dawn, section 202. It's describing how one day, even though this may seem impossible to us now, we would regard criminals as essentially no different from madmen, from from people simply suffering from like a mental sickness or some kind of just they're just sickness. We'll just say sickness. And he details how you could deal with the problem of a criminal, if you completely reframed his problem as of not being one of morality, but of mental health, you could deal with the problem in a more productive way. And so uh, the Dawn 202 quote, the care of health. We have scarcely begun to devote any attention to the physiology of criminals. And yet we have already reached the inevitable conclusion that between criminals and madmen there is no really essential difference if we suppose that the current moral fashion of thinking is a healthy way of thinking no belief however is nowadays more firmly believed in than this one so we should not therefore shrink from drawing the inevitable conclusion and treating the criminal like a lunatic above all not with haughty pitifulness but with medical skill and goodwill he may perhaps be in need A change of air, a change of society, or temporary absence, perhaps of solitude and new occupations. Very well. He may perhaps feel it would be to his advantage to live under surveillance for a short time, in order thus to obtain protection from himself and from a troublesome, tyrannical impulse. Very well, we should make clear to him the possibility and means of curing him. The extermination transformation and sublimation of these impulses and also in the worst cases the improbability of a cure and we should offer to the incurable criminal who has become a useless burden to himself the opportunity of committing suicide while holding this in reserve as an extreme measure of relief we should neglect nothing which would tend above all to restore to the criminal his good courage and freedom of spirit we should free his soul from all remorse as if it were something unclean, and show him how he may atone for a wrong which he may have done someone by benefiting someone else, perhaps the community at large, in such a way that he might even do more than balance his previous offense. All this must be done with the greatest tact. The criminal must, above all, re- remain anonymous, or adopt an assumed name, changing his place or re- residence frequently so that his reputation and future life may suffer as little as possible. End quote. So aside from the suggestion, hey, maybe you should commit suicide, (laughs) this might be the gentlest opinion you've ever heard from Nietzsche. And I love that because it's subversive in and of itself from the stereotypically harsh philosopher, the man can throw you a curveball every once in a while, you know? Because where that passage is coming from, again, it's a sincere attempt to consider how we might structure society in a way that would actually solve its problems without moralizing about it. Moralizing is where Nietzsche sees this giant pitfall. He sees this distorting effect on our thought. And so he's capable of going to a place that you or I might say sounds rather compassionate, but his prescription here is, again, it's not based on pity because at other times, thinking in much the same way, he can go to a very cruel-seeming place also. But this, this perspective is an attempt at dealing with the hard truths of why people do things, like commit violent criminal acts and how we might reduce the incidence of that behavior. And so it it might make us feel good to publicly hang a criminal, just like it made people in the past feel good to lynch Mary the elephant, but it's not productive. And ultimately it's based on the slave morality and the desire to take revenge and to dish out hurt to those who hurt you. Nietzsche is imagining a society that runs based instead on the extra moral framework, a society that regards each person as a natural phenomenon and not a divine, magical being. And so to conclude, uh, we're going to look at just one last passage. It's one of the most, another one of those big, heavy-hitter, famous aphorisms in Nietzsche. Um, One of the most famous. It's from the Gay Science 270. Quote, What does your conscience say? You should become what you are. End quote. Sometimes that's translated as become who you are. Um, this is, of course, influenced by Her- Heraclitus in his line, I sought myself. Uh, what you are, Nietzsche is not something freely chosen, and it's not something you authored. Notice he didn't say, become who you want to be. What you are is something which you must seek and discover. He also, he also doesn't say, you are what you are, you know, just simply this... He doesn't just essentialize the self as this static, consistent thing within the framework of becoming, wherein everything is in a ceaseless flux. You are this mysterious, unknown text of a being, and you're continually transforming and continually becoming and always drawing the final consequences of your nature at every moment. This means your fate is already written in a sense. And it's your task now to come to know that fate and uh, to embrace and embody that fate and that's why he writes uh, there's something from genealogy of morality uh the exact citation escapes me now the noble man lives in trust and ob- an openness with himself and so notice you know what this all is is an invitation to reconsider these simple truisms that you may have come to believe about yourself And about human beings and about morality and justice and so on and so i hope that any of the partisans of the free will debate out there will not listen to this and come to the end thinking this is a point scored for their side or some odious evil podcast that they have to provide a counter argument against um nietzsche is through these considerations trying always to inquire to to inquire into the self and into the mind And undermine convenient assumptions. Undermine the beliefs that make us feel good or feel safe. And so what I hope is that we've laid bare how many of the positions that people take about the self and free will are illusions. And Nietzsche's outlook, again, however irrationalist people want to say it is, is within the philosophical spirit of investigation of eliminating false beliefs and trying to seek true beliefs. And in that process, if we are to eliminate a vulgar conception of the will, this this absurd idea of the uncaused cause, for example, from a rational perspective, that can only pe- be to the good, right? Because it allows us to take a more serious approach. And if in the end, you still end up in the free will view, because you just can't countenance the idea of parting with the basis of our moral and legal traditions for example well so be it it was always your fate to believe that anyway